really what a great reminder we've had already this morning of uh, who God is and our need for God to intervene uh, in our world, uh, in our issues surrounding us in our nation, and in our own lives as well, too. And we say you're worthy of it all, and um, that is something that we need to remind ourselves of. God, you are worthy of all. That means me, my heart, my mind, my will, my energies. And our prayer this morning is that um, we would figure out that God would actually teach us and encourage us, prod us um, to live in such a way that we can uh, say that with the way we live. And if there's any book in the Bible that demonstrates a group of people trying to figure out to live um, boldly and and, uh, and daringly in a world that's filled with chaos. It's the book of Daniel. So here we are in this this series uh, beginning this morning called I Dare You, and uh, we're in chapter one of I Dare You, and it talks about I dare you to be creative, to actually think outside the box. That's been an interesting phrase. A lot of people have used it actually way back, I think it was in the 1970s, there was someone who came out with a bit of a puzzle. It was actually a fascinating psychological test that was used, and it was composed of nine dots, and you can see them here on the screen behind us. And <clears throat> the question was this, put your pencil on the page and keep it on the page, and with four lines, cross through every single dot on the page. And you've probably all seen this, it's been around forever, but it's an interesting one, isn't it? Even if you thought, boy, I think I remember how to do that, but I'm not sure. Put your pencil on the page, you get four lines, and you can't lift your pencil from the page. And I tried this for the longest time, and I could get all but one, and just could not figure out what to do with it. Well, actually, they found out that only 20% of the people that take this test can figure it out. Because what we do with our heads is we just figure out, we put a box around it, and we anticipate that we can't draw outside of that invisible box that we see, but it's not actually on the page. And we uh, constrict ourselves to drawing lines within those dots. And the solution to this puzzle actually is what you see on the screen next here, actually. You have to draw outside of the box that you put in your head and be able to hit all of those dots along the way. But here's what psychologists learned just recently, actually. We've talked so much about think outside the box, think outside the box. So they went back to this and they asked a question of a group of people, um, draw a line, same rules, and, and they said this, and you don't have to stay within the framework of the dots. So they basically gave the puzzle part of it away. They gave it away. And do you know how many, what percentage of the people were able to solve the puzzle then? Instead of 20% solving it, 25%. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> you know, you think, even when we're told that we can draw outside the lines, we just don't dare or we don't think about it. We can't even in our mind conceive of a way to creatively move beyond what's in our head to start with. We stay inside these self-imposed, the self-imposed box and we never are successful with the puzzle. Well, the same thing is true for life. We can stay inside a self-imposed box and never experience success or you know, celebrate something that has happened. When God talks about success for us, he's talking about um, just a celebration of um, knowing who God is, 
of seeing his life, uh, the power of his life in ours, the presence of his uh, being uh, alongside of us and his pr- provision along the way. And to be able to live this life, this life that could really be described as a life characterized, uh, as, as a life characterized by transcendence to it. That's actually what God wants. Our vision statement says it, to bring every person to life in Christ. And when and God invites us into life, it's not just that we're sitting here and we're breathing, but there's a transcendence to it. When Jesus actually said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Full, huge life. Some translations say, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it in its absolute abundance. What happens for us is we just draw an imaginary box around the way we're supposed to live and we don't experience anything beyond that. You see, there are boxes all over Johnson County. And I'm not talking about houses. I'm talking about the boxes in our heads and in our hearts that reduce our life to a set of, uh, of parameters that God never intended for us to live in. So we're in, we're in the middle of this series, I Dare You. God's daring us to live outside of the box, to figure out, God, what does it mean for my life to be characterized by transcendence and by the abundance that Jesus has provided for us? There's so many people, I think, in our communities that would say, you know what? Life might not have a transcendent element for me, but I'm holding things together. And I've just decided I'm going to settle for that. I can provide for my family. I can take care of my needs. And there are episodes in my life where I actually feel reasonably happy. And we even tell our young people, don't set your sights too high. Life is going to really disappoint you. And yet we see a God who invites us into a life that is filled with abundance How do we get there? How do we get to that place? Well, God gives us some help with that in the book of Daniel. And so we're going to be looking through it in these next number of weeks. And I'm going to read the text for us on your copy of Connect. I believe it starts in verse 8 and goes, what is it, to verse 16? Is that what it says there? Verse 14? 15, yeah. And I'm going to read the verses that set up verse 8, okay? So we can kind of get the whole story, and then we'll walk into what this account uh, uh, provides for us. Beginning in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This is a, a fail, actually. It's not a success here for Israel along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal families and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, uh, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you look worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Wow, what a story that is, isn't it? Several things in this account, actually, uh, that are important for us to be reminded of. The first is this. This story reminds us that the best stories in life come out of crisis. The best stories in life come out of crisis, come out of hardship. The best, most interesting, most transformative stories, that's what they are. We can even look to the things that fascinate us as a culture. I mean, the Lord of the Rings, what, what is a more riveting story than that? And yet it's filled with crisis, isn't it? There are dragons in that story. There's disaster. There's deception. There's defeat. And when you get to that point, all of us are all looking. Now the story is really, really interesting. Some of you say, Mark, it's just crazy. There are no dragons in life. Oh, yes, there are. There are creatures that will eat you up and spit you out, aren't there? In this world, there are people that will, there are things that will wring the life out of you. Life isn't much different than what we see in some of these fantasy stories. There, there is crisis in the midst of life, and we have metaphors for it. We talk about the refiner's fire. Actually, this hot, uh, heated place refines us and makes us what we want to be. There are metaphors of we, we, um, the resistance makes us stronger. You go into the weight room and it's true. You have the hardship of the weights and guess what? You emerge stronger as a result of it. So we see that sort of a thing and it's the way life is. I remember when my, my younger brother was injured just dramatically. We weren't sure whether he was going to live or not. And my aunt came into the hospital room and we really weren't sure whether Mike was going to survive. And in the midst of our just anguish over it, my aunt said to me, Mark, this is going to make you such a better pastor. Don't ever say that to anybody, by the way. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is just not what anybody needs to hear. I would have traded anything in the world for my brother to be able to get up and walk again. But you know what? <clears throat> she was right. It's what happens. In the crises and the difficulties and the hardships of life, they're actually the best stories emerge out of those places. I mean, consider this question. A pastor friend of mine asked just this week, when was the last time you experienced a spiritual breakthrough that came during a season of comfort and ease? Right? When did that happen? Some of the best stories come out of 
crisis because that's where God works. And we look at this in Daniel's circumstances that we see here. It was 605 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar was this force in, 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 in all of the nations around him. His father preceded him, had been an incredible force, fierce army, and done devastating things to just take over major portions of the known world. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes along, and in 605, he battles against the Egyptians, who were a force themselves. And he just destroys the Egyptian army. And for him, then, all of the plains of Palestine and even going into uh, Africa were available to him. And so he has all of this power, all of this capacity to reach out, and he needs leaders. And so his strategy was to go to these places and find strong, talented, gifted young people and teach them their culture, their language, their ways, and just immerse them in what their culture was about. And it was a pretty remarkable culture. And gain their allegiance in the midst of that time. And then they have leaders that they didn't have before. And they actually understand the place where they came from. And so in the book of Daniel chapter 1. We see Nebuchadnezzar just you know, perched outside of the capital of, of Judah. And then he eventually rides in and takes over. And he, he overthrows Jehoiakim. And he deports their, 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 their future. All of their future leaders. And he takes these worship articles, which for him might have felt like a little bit of a poke in the eye, but uh, for the nation of Israel, it was just an, an utter abomination, and to take them away. And so we just see, in the midst of a crisis and devastation, the nation has been crushed, and its best people have been taken from it. And even for Daniel, more personally, he, he was this young man. He wasn't 20 years old, most likely. I mean, you've got this high school young man. Nebuchadnezzar sees strength in somebody that old and uh, wants to use it for his benefit. He's a handsome young man. He has intellectual aptitude. He's got good bloodlines. I mean, it's just everything that would have allowed people to perk up, take notice, and have hope. And Daniel and his friends are ripped from their families, they're ripped from their homeland, they're ripped from their culture, they're just pulled away. And they are immersed in the culture of their enemies, the, the enemies that, have, that they have seen devastate their own families and, and nation. They've just been immersed in that and just been force-fed um, their values along the way. And they had their names changed. You might think, well, that's kind of a curiosity, but those names actually were names of the gods of the Babylonian Empire. So it's not just simply a name change. Hey, my dad called me Mark, and I'm, I'm going to keep it. It's, it was, it was, it was a, a, a slam, and it was an assertion of another religious influence in their very name being said. And there's also a strong possibility here, though we can't be as certain of it, but it appears that they took from these young men even their ability to father children. Uh, I mean, they had everything taken from them. And so here they are. And, and what do they do? Well, there's another element of captivity and the stuff taken from them, they're also provided with this really wonderful food that comes from the t uh, king's table. I mean, the, King uh, spared no expense. He wanted to make sure that 
these young potential leaders of his vast empire would be just as, 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 as strong as they could be. And so he provided no expense in making sure that they had those resources to them, for them. But it's interesting here that at this point in regards to the food and the drink, it triggers something in Daniel and we're left to wonder why, why was that the trigger? Why not the name change or the culture thing? Why, why was this the trigger? And scholars have looked at it and asked the question, what is this defilement all about? And there's some of the answers that come quickly that really don't work. You can say, well, it went against Jewish dietary regulations, but, but why then the wine, which would not? Others have speculated that the food was offered to idols, first of all. The king had his gods and the food was offered to the gods and so they wouldn't eat them because they had been offered to idols and we've, we, we read about that in God's word. But the reality is, is that all of it would have, meat and vegetables, same thing. Others have said, well, perhaps it's because they want to reject the king's authority over them and just kind of make a stand on this. But all of the food came from the king's hand, really. So we ask the question, well, what is this all about? Well, before we know the answer to that, we see that it actually worked. For 10 days, they eat vegetables and drink water. And they come back, and there's a notable difference between them and the others. I mean, that's extraordinary in and of itself, isn't it? I mean, just in the span of 10 days, there is this discernible difference that gives this guy hope that this is going to put them in a position where they're going to be pronounced best in class. And so they eat vegetables to the glory of God for three years. Now you might say, there's the lesson right here. We've got to be vegetarians or eat your vegetables. My grandma pulled this out all the time. <laughs> and if your kids aren't here, just go ahead and try it. Eat your vegetables. Be sure you eat your vegetables. But what's this all about? Why, why did they do this? In the midst of this, as scholars have looked at it, they've discerned this. They were determined to live knowing that God was present in their life. They were determined to live with the declaration that only God could have done this. Imagine a life lived that's positioned in such a way that you know only God. Only God, only God could have done this. And you know, what's interesting about this, this isn't a declaration, this isn't an evangelistic um, message because nobody knows about them except them and this one person that they asked to have work with them. This is completely private. You see, the purpose of this wasn't that other people would know that only God can provide what I need. The purpose of this was that Daniel would say, only God. This wasn't for you, this was for him. Don't you want to live a life where you know in your heart of hearts that God comes through? Not to tell somebody else, but to tell your heart and your soul and your mind, God's the one who is responsible for what happens in my life. I mean, he stands before the king and these four stand out as best in class, really. King doesn't know it. In fact, the king could assume, boy, I am really good. Some of my food was really great. You know, there's this possibility here 
that while the Babylonians thought that they were in control of the world, this narrative makes it clear that the true God is one who orchestrates events for the good of his people. And Daniel knew that he needed to know that. That God is the one who orchestrates events and circumstances and life for the good of his people. You see, the best stories are stories about crisis, but the reason why they're the best stories for us is this. The certainty of God's character comes in the midst of crisis. I put myself in a position where I only can count on God and I discover that he's real, he's there. I mean, think of it. Think of all the character traits of God that you learned in Sunday school class. And I bet everyone in this room can put a list of, you know, half dozen, a dozen character traits of God. Because we, we know them, right? We heard them in our youth group or we heard them in Sunday school class. But which of those traits of God do you actually know are true in your heart? I'm not saying you heard them in Sunday school class and you wrote it down. I'm not saying if somebody asks you what's God like, you can say it out of your mouth. I'm asking, do you believe it in your heart? In the core of who you are, is it so true that you absolutely count on it to live? This is what Daniel wanted. This is what Daniel knew he needed. The certainty of God's character comes in the context of our crises. You know, the word we use theologically is sovereignty, and it's a $20 word, uh, and it's a great word. It's the reality of God, and God is in control, and you can actually see it. We knew it. Actually, or those that, those that read this book in Hebrew knew it when they got to verse 2. You get to verse 2 here, and you read these words. It says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And you could say, yeah, yeah, you're just saying that because it happened, and so you're attributing it to God. So see, see, God knew that all along. You know, kind of just, yeah, you're, you're just trying to take credit for something. But by the time we get done with this story and we see the reality of it in story after story, crisis after crisis, we realize that that's what the Lord does. But it's interesting the word, the word used to describe God here. It says the Lord, and we run roughshod over it because we don't see a difference actually in the text. There are two words that could have been used, two names for God that could have been used here. One is Yahweh, which is a very familiar one to us. It talks about God's provision and God's care for his people primarily. And that's not the word used here. The word used here is Adonai, which talks about God's authority and his strength, his ownership, and his control. And so that's what we read beginning in verse 2. And the Lord delivered. You see, his sovereignty is all over this story. And it's not the kind of sovereignty that we learn about in seminary when we learn about these $20 words. It's a sovereignty that is discovered in the nitty-gritty of life. This isn't one you learn from your Sunday school teacher and you just simply say, it must be true. This is the one that God wants for us to learn in the nitty-gritty of life. And that's where this story takes place, in the nitty-gritty, in the messed up, 
crises, crushed moments of life, Daniel discovers that God is sovereign. You will never learn that in a seminary classroom. You actually learn it in the nitty-gritty of your life and my life. God's character is most clearly revealed in crisis, in my crisis, in your crisis, in your hardship. Don't run away. Don't run away from those things. Don't protect yourself from those places because we actually become who we're intended to be as we get to that place. So I want to just talk about, okay, what does it look like for us to apply this? And the first answer to that is, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, all week long, I just figure out what's the application for the people that are here. I can't figure it out for you. So I'm going to ask you to do the work yourself. And that's what happened for Daniel and his, and his, his friends. They were creative and they had to think out of the box. This wasn't a prescribed thing. There was no law, there was no moral code that said this is what you ought to do in this situation. They just figured it out. They just figured out this is what we're going to do to count on God. And those were the two aspects of it that define it. One is this was for the good of other people. It was. Daniel didn't hold a protest and withdraw and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you and your kingdom and your culture. He saw himself as there for such a time as that and walked into it and said, I'm going to fully engage. I'm not going to be of the world, but I'm going to be in it. And I'm going to be for the good of the city. That's what God calls us to, to fight for the good of places. And this is what Daniel was doing right there. So the first issue is in, in the creativity of what God calls me to in my life. After all, it is a Christian life, right? It's not a prescription, it's a life. You've got to figure out how to live that life. And one element of it will be this. What can I do that is for the good of others? And that's what Daniel was doing. But the other, one of them, the other element of it, what can I do that will remind me of the power and the presence of God so I can live with confidence in the midst of it? so that I can live outside of the box and do something that I would never configure a way to do if God wasn't alive. What would I do? What will I do? Because I'm certain God is alive and I will see it when it happens. So those really are the two elements of it. It's for the good of others and it's for the strengthening of our faith. And then there are just two actions I would suggest. I'll tell you what I think the first one is. The second one you'll just have to figure out. The first one actually is something that God does and when we first become Christians so that we can kind of walk into and live into the reality of what this is about. It's not the creative part because actually God prescribes it for us. It's one of a number of things, but this one is just so obvious and easy to use as an example of it. And it is to provide to God resources, substantial resources of our life. I learned this as a kid. You know, I told you, I learned about what 10% was before all of my other colleagues in my classroom. I, got, I knew percentages before I even went to, went to first grade because my parents taught me what 10% was. And when I started mowing lawns and doing other odd jobs, they would just pull it out and say, okay, this belongs to God. And that's what God calls us into, to give generously of what we have for the good of others. And at such a level that we have to depend on God to provide the other needs. I mean, didn't you swallow hard when you first took out your budget and calculated 10% and you saw that it amounted to thousands of dollars? 
And you say, oh God, you better show up. And, and, and then he did, right? And then God does show up. I remember when Beth and I were first married and, and we, we blundered actually and landed in Milwaukee and I thought I had an income and I didn't and Beth was just getting paid a little bit by a church as an internship. And, and we looked at each other and we said, we are in trouble. And every single dollar, every single quarter, literally every single quarter meant something to us. I remember nights when we would go through the dresser looking for nickels and dimes and quarters to have something to eat for that night. That's the place we were in at that moment of time. But we said this because our parents had taught us that this is what you've got to, this is the way you've got to, you in a crisis? Let God show up. And that was a determination we made and it was like, God, how could you ever have provided housing like that? That's beyond any human capacity to understand it. And there it was. How could you provide resource, uh, uh, food, food like that? And you know what that did in our lives? It just built our confidence and awareness. God is right here. And I can act outside of the normal box of what people would tell me to do in it because God's out there too. Now, this isn't a sermon on tithing. I'm not going to exhort you to tithe. I'm assuming you understand that already. But you see why God does it for us? It's not to fund something, it's to change my heart. It's in the nitty gritty of resource allocation that I discover the sovereignty of God. And I would never learn that from my Sunday school teacher. I would learn that in the moments where I take a deep breath and wonder whether it's possible to press forward and discover God is there. Do you see? It's that whole process of us living like that because when we come to Christ, God calls us to it. That doesn't mean that's then who we are. That's the basis for who we'll become. That's not the end point that I tithe. It's the beginning point of confidence. I can do, I can do things for the betterment of others and God will show up because he has. That's the lesson that precedes the life that God wants us to live. So here's the second part. What will you do to live outside of the box that is for the good of other people that is utterly dependent on God showing up so that at the end of the day, they celebrate and we worship? And we know in our heart of hearts Everything we learn in Sunday school class, it's actually true. And I know it with my head and my heart and every ounce of energy God has given me. Imagine that. Daring to live with a creativity about life where I know God will show up. And others will see the glory of God. But that other scene, that comes in chapter 2 and following. Chapter 1 is, what do I believe? Would you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you so much for how good you are, for this encouragement uh, to us. 
for this challenge to live lives filled with this kind of daring. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help all of us to be able to figure out what that application is in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.